Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So I did not intend for today to be a Halloween episode. <laughs> but uh, it is scary. Yeah. Uh, due to some quirks in our publishing schedule... It happens to be coming out right before Halloween. It is a, a listener request from listener Ellen, or perhaps Elin. And in researching it, I realized it was the most frightening thing I had ever learned about. So, so buckle up. History has scared Tracy. History has scared me. So from 1916 to about 1927, this really bizarre e- epidemic spread around the world. It came to be known as sleepy sickness, and it is not to be confused with sleeping sickness, which is a tropical disease found in sub-Saharan Africa. This is another name for a disease called encephalitis lethargica, and it caused this really weird variety of symptoms from drastic behavior changes to unusual eye movements, uh, especially in the beginning years of it, uh, the really common element was this deep, prolonged sleep that went on and on from days to months. And people just couldn't wake up. Uh, between 20 and 40% of the people who got this disease died. And of the ones who survived, only about a third really fully recovered. The rest developed what came to be known as post-encephalitic Parkinsonism. And some of these patients persisted in a semi-comatose state for decades. It's extra terrifying. The next part is even more terrifying. Yeah, as if all of this were not uh, enough to scare the pants off of you. While in this extremely deep sleep that was part of many of the cases, people appeared to be unconscious, but in reality, they were actually alert. They were completely aware of what was going on, but they were unable to move or speak. So it was a sort of paralysis, really. Yeah, so people today may have heard about this whole disease from the 1990 movie Awakenings, starring Robin Williams, or maybe from the first pages of Neil Gaiman's amazing comic book series Sandman, which starts off when a ritual that was meant to capture death instead captures dream and causes people to sleep endlessly. Otherwise, it's pretty far in the background of medical history most of the time. It's not something that people remember all that well today. But from its onset until about 10 years after it faded away, there were more than 9,000 papers and books published on it. So at the time, it was a big deal, even though people don't necessarily come up with it immediately when thinking about huge epidemics today. Yeah. And I wonder why that is. Uh, We'll talk about some of that. Yeah. Uh, Prolonged sleep as an illness has been reported really, really way back into history. There are written records as early as Hippocrates of this kind of incident happening. And then there are also, of course, in our cultural consciousness, tales like Sleeping Beauty and these stories like Rip Van Winkle. Uh, and some people along the line have theorized that these were actually rooted to some degree in some kind of sleeping illness. In the real world, there had also been an outbreak of a similar condition in Italy in 1889 and 1890, which came to be known as La Nona. And it was thought at the time to be a complication of the flu. And around the world, other outbreaks of encephalitis had also followed behind other ap- epidemics, particularly the flu. This particular one started just a couple of years before the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic 
which killed between 20 and 40 million people. And when it came to the encephalitis lethargica epidemic, the first reports came at about the same time in diff- two different places, which were France and Austria, in 1916. In France, a doctor named Jean-René Crochet started to see six soldiers with this weird assortment of seemingly unrelated neurological symptoms. And the one common element was that the patients just slept apparently peacefully and deeply, and they could not be woken up. And he started to wonder whether there was some kind of new chemical weapon at work. At about the same time, a British doctor named A.J. Hall also reported similar uh, symptoms in other troops who were stationed in France. In Vienna, it came to the attention of Romanian-Austrian psychiatrist Constantin von Economo after a sleepy, disoriented civilian wandered into the Wagner Jarig clinic where he worked. The doctors there had mostly been treating soldiers who were wounded in the war, so they really weren't prepared for this apparently uninjured civilian with nothing physically wrong that they could really point to. Right. And then more and more patients with similar symptoms arrived at the clinic. And they're, you know, they had the similar part of this uncontrollable sleepiness and sleep, but the rest of their symptoms were so strange and diverse that the doctors were really at a loss to figure out a cause or a treatment. These patients had fevers, malaise, double vision. They became lethargic. Sometimes they had sore throats. Their eye muscles would start working and their eyes would dart around or roll back in their heads. Uh, Some of them developed very strange eye and tongue movements and this variety of other neurological and psychiatric symptoms. A few of them even had uncontrollable hiccups and one died of that. How does that work? Well, if you can't stop hiccuping, you can't really eat or sleep. Uh, And then it can cause all kinds of other... Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Once again, throughout all of this, the common element was this strange deep sleep from which they could not be woken. Uh, Von Economo saw this common element and said, we are dealing with a sleeping sickness. Yeah, he was really the one that just laid that out there. And he's a character on his own. He was also a pilot who had been serving in the war, but he came back home to Vienna after his brother was killed and he really wanted to be flying, but reluctantly transferred to doing medical work instead to try to keep himself more out of danger and spare his family from further grief. On top of all that, he was also a baron, having been born to a family of Greek aristocrats and then married the daughter of an Austrian prince. As the patients started to die from sleep, uh, Von Economo started an intense research effort to find a cause and a cure. He studied autopsies of patients who had died of the disease, and he found common uh, areas of damage to their brains, specifically in the hypothalamus. And he suspected that the differences in how much people slept was related to just how their hypothalamus was damaged. He also found that brain tissue could transmit the disease to monkeys. So he concluded that they were looking at something that was contagious. He publicly announced his conclusion that they were dealing with a new disease, probably a virus, before the Psychiatric Society in Vienna on April 17th of 1917. Uh, consequently, sometimes the disease has been referred to as von Economo's disease. His announcement was not at all well-received. Uh, at the time, the prevailing view was that mental illnesses were all products of things like trauma and buried memories. Freud was really at the forefront of psychology at this point, 
So a lot of people just scoffed at the idea that there could be a virus or other disease process causing the kinds of behavior changes and psychological problems that some of the patients were exhibiting. The ongoing debate and this mystery of the whole thing kept much progress from being made in terms of treatment or prevention. But then uh, the illness mostly disappeared from continental Europe. It really just fell off suddenly, and Spanish flu on the rise took its place, and it became a much more pressing priority. Not long after that, though, the disease appeared in London, and it followed much the same pattern as it had on the continent. Uh, there were, you know, all these patients who were suddenly having this strange collective collection of symptoms and sleeping constantly. The government in Britain quickly made it a reportable disease. The Ministry of Health had to be notified of all new cases. And its appearance and spread uh, in London was much like it had been in France and Austria. Strange symptoms and unending sleep, uh, you know, baffling the doctors. But in England, the symptoms became even more alarming with patients who could never sleep or who couldn't stop laughing or had other strange physical or emotional presentations. It also seemed like fewer and fewer people were truly recovering. Uh, in Austria and France, there had been people that had gotten better. But as it spread around England, a lot of people were becoming comatose or developing, as we mentioned at the beginning, what later came to be known as post-encephalitic Parkinsonism, or PEP. Sometimes the onset of Parkinsonism happened years after people recovered, after they had apparently been healthy all that time. During the epidemic, the average age for the onset of Parkinson's dropped to 36 years old. Uh, today, while there are people who have early onset, the average age for people to start exhibiting uh, Parkinson's is 60. So this was really a significant and strange happening. Uh, following the epidemic, two-thirds of Parkinson's patients had previously had encephalitis. So... It clearly was causing it. Right. This this disease was causing a drastic shift in who developed Parkinson's and when. So to return to the story of encephalitis lethargica, from England, the disease spread all over the globe. And the same story just played out over and over and over. People would start showing up with these strange symptoms that pre- that presented themselves in such different ways but it would take a while for doctors to realize what was happening. It really didn't help that the epidemic had started just at the end of World War I and just before the start of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. And so resources were just scarce, and there were definitely bigger priorities going on than this crazy although terrifying disease. And as it spread, it started to prompt a variety of different sleep disorders. So while some patients would sleep for months at a time, others couldn't sleep at all and they would actually die of exhaustion. The disease came to be known in some places as epidemic encephalitis rather than encephalitis lethargica, since not everyone could really be called lethargic anymore. As it spread, it also started to affect more and more children and young people. Children who contracted the disease developed impulse control issues that led to them having violent behavior in their adolescence. Some of them injured themselves or other people. One even removed her own eyes and several of her own teeth. Okay, after I unclench after that. Uh, This behavior often would continue for the rest of these patients' lives after they progress out of childhood. 
Unless post-encephalitic Parkinsonism made them physically unable to continue. Uh, for children with the disease, outbursts were so severe that many had to be institutionalized. Hospitals and asylums that were accustomed to providing care for adults suddenly had to develop new practices to care for children because there were so many suddenly having to move into institutions. Researchers theorized that the reason this encephalitis was causing behavior changes like this in young people was because their brains hadn't yet developed the capacity for self-control that adults typically had by the time they were infected. And this tendency towards violent behavior and other erratic behavior even led to encephalitis lethargica being blamed for gangster behavior and lawlessness during the 1920s. Once this disease spread to the United States, Neurologist Frederick Tilney, who was known as Fred and had also been Helen Keller's neurologist, became the country's foremost authority on sleepy sickness. One of his most famous encephalitis patients was Jessie Morgan, who was the wife of Jack P. Morgan, who himself was the son of banker and philanthropist John Pierpoint Morgan. She got the disease in 1925. After Jesse's death, Jack donated $200,000 to the Neurological Institute to fund research into this disease. The Neurological Institute was behind most of the research into encephalitis lethargica that came from that point. Later on, William Matheson, who was the wealthy founder of a chemical company and an encephalitis patient, started the Matheson Commission to fund research at the Neurological Institute with Dr. Josephine B. Neal, who was an encephalitis expert, uh, helming the project. And the commission's aim was to study the disease and eventually find a vaccine. Since nobody knew exactly what was causing the disease, they worked on three theories simultaneously. One was that it was being caused by an unknown virus. The next was that it was being caused by bacteria, possibly strep. Uh, And the third was that it was being caused by herpes. This was a long shot to begin with because no causative agent had been found for this disease. They were basically operating in the dark based on best guesses. On top of that, there was a ton of infighting among the researchers. A lot of them were extremely prominent neurologists and scientists. Each of them really wanted to be the one to crack this case and figure out what's going on. Um, they, they were not working together very well. They were each trying to get the glory for themselves. And then there was another huge setback when Matheson himself died in 1930. That was in the middle of the Great Depression, and he had been providing the funding. So after his death, there wasn't really other funding to be had. So the Matheson Commission ceased operations in 1942. And so no workable vaccine had been developed. And one of the things that doctors tried to treat post-encephalitis patients with was lobotomies. Which also did not work. (laughs) There was a lot of, and then that did not work. There were a few outlying successes during this time that would kind of give people false hope that maybe they were on the right track. But nothing led to an actual treatment or cure. Most of the medical care that the patients were receiving was really about just caring for their bodies and keeping them alive. The 30 or so percent who developed Parkinsonism generally wound up in long-term care for the rest of their lives, and many of them were completely unable to move or take care of themselves. 
In the 1960s, after the drug Levodopa, or L-Dopa as it was called, was introduced for treating Parkinson's, New York doctor Oliver Sacks, who some of our listeners may have heard of, administered it to some encephalitis lethargica patients who were in long-term care. Some patients actually showed a limited recovery from their post-encephalitis lethargica Parkinson's symptoms. Uh, this is the story that's actually told in the movie Awakenings, which is why people may have heard of Oliver Sacks. Uh, but they all apparently developed a tolerance uh, until the dosage was really just too much for the human body to handle. And then they would return to their semi-comatose state. In the end, this epidemic went on from 1916 to 1927, uh, reaching its peak in 1924, after which the number of cases started to drop off. The total numbers of people affected are really unclear. There are sources who say that a million people were killed, while others say that only a half a million were affected in one way or another. Regardless, though, the mortality rate was pretty serious. In England, almost half of the cases in 1919 and 1920 died. Although it was roughly concurrent with the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, and flu came up frequently when looking at possible causes, many doctors at the time didn't really think the disease was actually flu-related. Only a small percentage of the patients had also had Spanish flu. In 1982, however, doctors from the Centers for Disease Control published this list of connections between the two diseases. So for a little while, in more recent years, flu became a prime suspect for causing encephalitis lethargica. Uh, there is, you know, especially since there have been other in- incidents of encephalitis that have followed outbreaks of the flu. Today, the idea that the flu was the culprit has pretty much been ruled out thanks to modern testing methods. Uh, they haven't turned up any sign of the flu virus in tissue samples from patients who died from encephalitis. Although it's never reached that same e- epidemic state again, isolated cases of encephalitis lethargica have continued to crop up, even in recent years. Most recently, in 1993, uh, a 23-year-old named Becky Howell was diagnosed with the disease, and it took her two years to recover. Several similar cases followed. In 2003, a team of doctors published a paper in the journal Brain that put forth a pretty good case that the cause of encephalitis lethargica is actually a massive autoimmune reaction to an unidentified pathogen. Uh, A strain of strep comes up in the discussion, but it's ultimately dismissed as unlikely. And their research was done on 20 different patients who developed the disease between 1999 and 2002. And those patients had a much lower mortality rate than during the epidemic. Uh, Only one died, but five of them did have to be placed on a ventilator. Had those five patients lived in the 1920s, they probably would not have made it. Uh, but almost none of them had fully recovered a year or so later when the paper was published. They continued to have neurological and psychiatric symptoms. Yeah, if if there had been, if today's ventilation technology had existed in the 1920s, the mortality rate would have been significantly different. Yeah. yeah, because people would get into this just deep, uninterrupted sleep and their respiratory functions would fail and there wasn't really anything that people could do about it. But now that we have ventilators, uh, there are actual, there's a treatment for that part of it that didn't exist back then. In 2012, a paper in the journal BMC Infectious Diseases reported that a team of researchers had found virus-like particles in the brains of both Uh, epidemic encephalitis patients and modern patients. So people who had died uh, either recently or during the epidemic. 
This supports the idea that the cause of encephalitis lethargica is an enterovirus, but exactly what enterovirus we still do not know. And on that note, so encephalitis lethargica has a some you know a legacy today, even though a lot of people have not really heard of it. As tragic and frightening as the disease was and is really, in the end, it helped doctors understand more about the brain. Von Economo's conclusion about the hypothalamus and its role in the patient's sleep, for example, was hugely unpopular at the time. But many years later, it was proved to be true. Uh, after we developed sorts of imaging technologies that we can use to look directly at the brain as it's working today. Neurologist Bernard Sachs also wrote that the epidemic of encephalitis, quote, revolutionized the practice of neurology. Yeah. So it really changed the way that uh, these things were examined from it, the get-go. Yeah, it helped solidify neurology as an actual field. In the early days, there was sort of this hodgepodge of neurology ideas and psychology ideas and all these things that were kind of together in one big pot. And in part because of encephalitis being spread the way that it was, uh, a group of uh, doctors branched off to study just neurology. And encephalitis lethargica was also one of the conditions that made it clear that disease processes can lead to mental illnesses. Uh, it solidified the idea that mental illnesses were not solely in the realm of emotions or traumatic experiences. It's not always buried memories. Sometimes there can actually be a physical happening that causes mental illness. There are a couple of books that are out about this epidemic. Uh, the one that I read researching this podcast was called Asleep, the Forgotten Epidemic that Remains One of Medicine's Greatest Mysteries by Molly Caldwell Crosby. And her grandmother survived sleepy sickness. It starts with sort of a case study of her grandmother that's terrifying <laughs> because it's about her grandmother being asleep for so long, but also being aware of what was happening around her, which to me is just terrifying. Uh, the one caveat about this book is that it was written before the very most recent research about what might have caused this particular uh, epidemic, um, which is going to be the case with just about every book now since the latest research is just it's from very new. Yeah, last year as we were recording, I read several papers that uh, you know, in, when the bird flu epidemic mm-hmm. was was everybody was very frightened about bird flu. Uh, there were several articles that that came up where doctors were like, actually, what you really should be afraid of is a resurgence of this still unidentified uh, encephalitis. That sometimes that follows. That sometimes follows outbreaks of other diseases. Yeah. So, I, yeah. It's basically my worst nightmare. I mean, I have not a good relationship with sleep anyway. If I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't. Uh-huh. So the idea of not having any control over the situation... And just being asleep, but not really, because you're conscious of things happening around, is my worst nightmare. Yeah. Not to play on sleep jokes, but well, uh, it's terrifying. And the there are many things about this whole, the, the epidemic and the illness itself that are, are frightening to me. And one of them is that people would seem to recover and they would be fine for a long time. And then Very develop, fine. Yeah, develop Parkinson's symptoms. Um, and once it had been established that that was a pattern, I can imagine like the people who had gotten better really being like, I'm never going to be. You would in live the in clear. fear, yeah. Which I know that's the case with a lot of uh, diseases that people have now. Like uh, there are many cancer patients who never feel like they are in the clear because 
you, you can be in remission. You and can that be in remission. Always last forever. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that, it's a scary thing to live with that kind of over you all the all time. the time. This is cheerful. It is. Do you have listener mail to cheer us up? I do have listener mail. And actually, the first listener mail that I have is very cheerful. I have two of them. One of them is is short. Uh, The first one is from Vince. And he says, Dear Tracy, thank you for helping me through some boring work days. During your recent podcast on Luis Alvarez, you mentioned all the Berkeley Nobel laureates from its past. Being a proud alum, I recently had a chance to visit Berkeley and strolling around the campus. I noticed this cute photo op between the two physics buildings. And basically, he attached a picture of this row of prime parking spaces that all are like, this space is for a Nobel Nobel laureate. (laughs) So Nobel laureates get awesome reserved parking at Berkeley. They deserve it. They've probably lost a lot of time in their lives to working very hard on very difficult problems. Yeah, there there are a lot of spaces and they are right by the building. He says, (laughs) for me, it truly illustrates how good Berkeley research really is. Thanks again, Vince. Thank you, Vince. I love that picture. Yes. Okay, the other one uh, is from Sarah, and I'm, I'm going to just start with a confession that I, I worried that when we were talking about Luis Alvarez that we were talking too much about how hard a lot of his discoveries are to understand if you are not also a physicist. So I particularly liked this letter from Sarah. Sarah says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a graduate student at MIT, and I love listening to your podcast when I set up reactions in our nitrogen-filled glove box or wash my glassware. I just listened to your podcast on Luis Alvarez, and I wanted to thank you for all the podcasts you've done, which touch on science. Even though for the purposes of this episode, I'm a chemist and not a theoretical physicist, I find your descriptions clear and engaging, which is so rare to find in science communication. I have a small correction to make on your last episode, where you mentioned that the temperature of liquid hydrogen is 2,500 degrees below zero Celsius. I think you meant minus 253 degrees Celsius, since absolute zero, zero Kelvin, is minus 273 degrees Celsius. At this point, molecules cease to have entropy, and it is the coldest possible temperature. So liquid hydrogen is 20 Kelvin, which is still really, really cold, but not as clear as liquid helium, which is 4 Kelvin. Also, I was interested in hearing the Chicxulub crater mentioned. I studied abroad in the Yucatan Peninsula in college and visited the town of Chicxulub several times. But it was only after I got back to the States that I saw that 2010 science paper that you mentioned and realized that I had been in the impact site, probably responsible for the mass extinctions without knowing it. By the way, you got the pronunciation pretty close, but it's actually pronounced more like Chicxulub, the exclamation SH sound. Apparently means something like flea devil, according to Wikipedia. In any case, it was amazing to have the chance to study there. So much of the Mayan culture and the language is preserved in the Yucatan. Uh, And then Sarah recommends a a subject for us to talk about, which we're just going to save in case we're able to do that in a later podcast. And she says, anyway, sorry this email got so long, but I wanted to thank you guys for your science reporting. Keep up the good work, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, we got a few corrections on the the temperature thing. We did. I would like to thank Sarah's correction for being very nice about it. (laughs) There were a couple people who needed to tell us that corrections are bad and that mistakes are bad. And we know that. We try our best. So, yes, that is totally either a typo in my notes or a typo in something I was making notes from. So thank you very much for clarifying just how extremely, extremely cold liquid hydrogen is. Thankfully, we did not work in a lab where there would be actual scary implications of us making an 
error of that magnitude. Yes. We're safe. It's just words. <laughs> <laughs> it's just words and we're editors. So it's kind of our job. Uh, but yeah, occasionally we do get stuff wrong in spite of our best efforts. So thank you so much, Sarah. I am so glad to hear from science people who enjoy us talking about science because I do love science, but I because do. it is not, you. yes, because it is not like my primary field of study, uh, sometimes I get stuff a little wrong. So if you would like to write us a letter about this, or any other subject you can we are at historypodcastatdiscovery.com we're also on facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff and on twitter at mist in history our tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are pinning things up on pinterest if you would like to learn a little more about something we talked about today you can go to our website and put the word sleep in the search bar you will find the article how sleep works you can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.